nervous. Little Moon? I hope he says yes. Hello? Wayne? What's up? Hey, Wayne, this is John, Jeremy, and Jason Chapman. All on Hi, one Wayne. call. All right. <laughs> All three of the JCs. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thanks, Jeremy has something to ask you since he's a mandolin player. Um, will you be my friend? <laughs> All right. Second question. Will you be on our podcast? Yeah, you know I will. All right, that'd be sweet. Awesome. Let's sit down and talk about things. You, you remember that time that you played that really cool lick? That was so cool. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one time, yeah, that must have been like 97. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I look forward to it, man. It's going to be fun. It will be fun. All right, we'll see you then. Okay, pal. Have a good one. Thanks. Bye. Take me away, cause I can be the link. Let somebody run, let it go, and I can have my way. Um, it's good to be seated with you three gentlemen here at the table one more time. For, you sound so official. I know. It's, well, I wanted to do it in a more professional manner. With the gentleman to the left has <laughs> the floor. The gentleman from North Carolina. Will, will you yield, sir? <laughs> I ask, will you yield? Blah, blah, blah. That's what it is now. Blah, blah, blah. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Um, guys, it's good to see you again. You can't use that. I was just saying it's a good blog if you would like to read about the law blog of Bob Blah Blah. <laughs> he's a great, great writer on, on law. Yeah, all things law. And he's a good blogger. Anyway, we like Arrested Development. Podcasting, Jason, am I right? Yeah, I think this is a thing, guys. I'm having fun with it. I hope the audience is. They seem to be responding well. And even if they're not, even if nobody's listening, and most of those yeah. views are probably me, well, I love getting to know some of the people we thought we knew a little better. It's good you say that because um, uh, nobody's listening. <laughs> the numbers are in. The numbers yeah. are in. And, uh, <laughs> they all get traced back to one IP address, and it's me <laughs> listening to the same podcasting. Yeah. I didn't know that about that person that I knew. Do you think yeah. anybody uh, tunes into a, a podcast where everybody just kind of uh, kind of clears their throat through the entire thing? Like, <clears throat> no, but well, um, um, there's a lot of editing, <laughs> some breathing out of these episodes. Really? Is it from me? So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. Well, I there you go, audience. Anything, uh, you're welcome for that. That will not be edited. <laughs> yeah, out. that's part of the episode. This part is this episode, but yeah. Anyway, uh, who do we have as a guest today, guys? We have Mr. Wayne Benson. You what know a him. hero. Yeah, you know him, the creator of every lick you've ever tried to play. <laughs> exactly. And failed. Every, the every originator. Single, every failed lick Jeremy's ever tried. I like to call him Sir Benson. Every lick that Jeremy has done, it came from Wayne. <laughs> no, Wayne, Wayne Benson, uh, one of our heroes, one of the guys, he was in the band that basically influenced everything we did from yeah. the early 90s to the mid 2000s we were we wanted to be them we wanted to follow them around the campgrounds and yeah. we did follow them yeah we were like little kids bugging the I think heck we, out they had a restraining order for a little while but uh okay. we got over that we figured it out <laughs> you we know worked loopholes so he's got this uh new channel that he's doing called wayne's world and i actually saw somebody asking you know wayne's best world places. mandolin i think he's gonna have to is it otherwise, yeah so. it just says wayne's world i think and uh and somebody put out, you know, best places to learn mandolin. And it was in there. Wayne's World. I thought it was a joke at the first. And then I, it dawned on me. I remembered, yeah, Wayne Benson's. Yeah. 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 It's, and I think that's genius because I am a fan of Wayne. We, we should ask him about Wayne's World. Mm-hmm. Do you think he watches the movie? Party on? <laughs> <laughs> I feel I assume, like Garth right now. I assume he knows how to party on. <laughs> Anyway. I'm really excited yeah. to talk to Wayne and let him know how much I appreciated stealing all of his licks and that I probably owe him some royalties and for apologize for ruining them all. Well, yeah, exactly. He's got to understand. Well, it was what it was the heart. It was <laughs> what I meant to do with the, the licks. intent <laughs> is all that really matters. <laughs> Any anyway, let's Mr. Let Wayne, Wayne Benson on the show. Mr. Wayne, Wayne, Mr. Wayne, Wayne Benson, Benson, Benson. All right, guys, we're real excited to have another Acoustic Shop Knows People episode with one of my favorite people, one of my mandolin yes. heroes uh, from way back when I was stealing everybody's licks. I probably stole, I'd say, almost more of his his solos and licks than just about any mandolin player, which I need to apologize for doing that, or at least send a royalty. Yeah. <laughs> a poor representation. But <laughs> Wayne Benson, very excited to have Wayne Benson on Yay! the episode today. 
Wayne Benson of Third Time Out and Wayne's World. Uh, it is good to have you on the uh, show here today. Man, it's great to be with you guys. I appreciate it. We spent uh, many, many uh, years together uh, doing. There was a time period when we would probably see you almost at least one time every single week on the road at some show. We would somehow be out there, uh, and then then we weren't asked to play those shows anymore. <laughs> right, <laughs> man. I do. It was all the time with third time out. I remember those days so well, man, because it was really um, kind of like a heyday for bluegrass at that yeah. point. You know, we were all obviously a lot younger. I thought of you guys this this past week uh, at Poppy Mountain because I, yeah. I remember us being there, which was actually Rudy Fest, you know, that is uh, they have yeah. at that same yeah. location. And they still have Poppy Mountain. Um, yeah. That festival still ongoing, and we just did a benefit um, at that same location. So we're going to play that same venue three times this year. But I'm in that place career-wise where I just look back on so many things. Yeah. Third time out's in its 33rd year as a band. Wow. Yeah. At the, or no, 32nd year as a <clears throat> band. But like Poppy Mountain and those places, man, once I did, you know, we used to host that festival. We would get there like on Monday and not leave until Sunday. Mm-hmm. And I, I did them and that went on for like the bigger part of 10 years. I think that we were the host. And I, anyway, I did the math one time on how, how much time I spent on that hill. <laughs> it was a little bit depressing <laughs> thinking back to it in that way. And it's the same way with all these other venues. Like if I counted up how much time I spent at the executive inn in Owensboro, Kentucky. I've, I've lived there for like three months, yeah. you know, just from all the years of IBMA added up together. You. Yeah. If only they had a punch card of some kind. <laughs> right. Capitalize on. You get one night. Sure. By, by the way, uh, when it was Poppy Mountain, the third time out festival, also known as one of the wildest festivals. Not during- originally. I think it just slowly <laughs> progressed that way, but it, it got pretty crazy. And yeah, a lot, a lot yeah. of Might have led to a few deaths on I golf carts. And- I don't even think, uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Wayne, but I don't think you were part of most of the chaos that would happen there, but those folks were wild. I mean, oh, yeah. wild. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's... You know, like walking back to the bus from certain locations, you probably want to have somebody with you. (laughs) I remember when we went and played Poppy Mountain, uh, because like I said, we played a lot together and and the Chapmans were very closely entwined with Third Time Out between Ray Deaton and Russell and your entire uh, group of folks. We were all a very tight unit, and we worked together. We did shows. We wanted to be third time out for well, so yeah, long. We wanted we were That was what we were trying to be. We idolized you guys so much that we got to hang out with you. It was very fortunate. But yes. It was very awesome. We were around but you a lot. Where I was coming with this is Dad had a rule at Poppy Mountain, which was when the sun went down, we had to all be in a unit and not very far from the vehicle. <laughs> I never went far from the stage. I stayed close to backstage. There was there was one year that we were one campsite where they were making moonshine in a radiator of a vehicle. Like they were using that to distill their moonshine. So it was a uh, yeah, it was an interesting festival. But yeah, I. I let, let's just go back before <laughs> that. You're done. Yeah. That has nothing to do with Wayne, but. Keeping it real kind of festival, it right? Definitely yeah. keeping it real. I, I was, uh, we got to talk to Kristen on an episode and we were, uh, she was mentioning that one of the things that got her inspired to play banjo was Scott Vestal, which also was pretty instrumental in you getting on your first band. Is that correct? It, that's true. Yeah. The first, uh, professional band that I was ever in was with, um, with Scott Vesta with a, that group called Livewire that I'm sure you're um, love, love the one album. I think you guys put out. <laughs> yeah. One record, one and done with, for that yeah. band. We had, the deck was kind of stacked against us as far as we all lived from each other. We had Ernie on uh, long Island up in New York. Really? And then I did Robert, Robert Hale in um, West Virginia, myself at the time, I still live with my parents. I was 19 years old. And I was near Charlotte, North Carolina, and then Scott was all the way down in Atlanta. So it was tough, you know, trying yeah. to get together or to find work where you could really, you know, realize any money at the end of the day, just on expenses for everybody to get there. But it was a really fun band. I was totally great in. Stuff. 
man, I was in over my head to be <laughs> in that group, which is, I mean, the ultimate place to be to yeah. learn, you know, to, you know, go ahead and bite off more sure. than you can chew because you learn sure. a lot like that. But look, again, uh, me being an old guy, looking back on all that, when I was 16, 17 years old and would be in jam sessions like over at Denton, North Carolina with, with Scott Vestal and Russell Moore, I had no idea that that was going to lead, you know, and just unfold into the career that I've had, you know, was could all could go back to just being in love with bluegrass as a kid and doing what everybody does and getting out in the parking lot and play until daylight. And those guys were still, I mean, really young at that time too. Sure. Russell, I think Russell is five years older than me. And if, if I'm not mistaken, Scott's just a, a few, maybe three years older than him, something like that. Yeah. yeah. And then those guys, obviously they went on to play with Doyle Lawson and then that eventually led to the third time out. And uh, it's kind of cool how all these different pieces kind of came together and you've been uh, a part of those floating around. I know throughout the years, one of, I already admitted how much of your stuff I stole. Part of it was that series you did with Scott Vestal, the on Pine Castle records, the uh, bluegrass 95, seven, you know, all the way through the two thousands. Before then, I think I was just doing a lot of uh, the, the bluegrass standard vocal tunes and I didn't learn many fiddle tunes. And then you sure. guys put that series of albums out of all these fiddle tunes and I would just eat the those instrumentals. up instrumentals and yeah. I would just eat those up and steal as many solos and licks of those as I possibly could. And that was really cool. So what we're saying is Scott Vessel is, can the you most ask him if he'll be on the podcast? No. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I have to say those records, I would have never thought would have been something that were, that was getting talked about, you know, nearly 30 years later when we made those, it, they were so loose and the whole way, I always like to put this out there because it's the truth. That first album was was not conceived to be Bluegrass 95. That was a Clay Jones yeah. instrumental record. And right. uh, and then he, you know, ended up not playing. He, he wasn't traveling anymore to play, which and that's your number one way to move product in 1995. So rather than just the record never come out, if I'm not mistaken, David Parmley, he had produced that album. He had the idea. He said, just call it Bluegrass 95 because we've got mandolin intros, banjo intros. It doesn't necessarily sound like a guitar album. It features all this other stuff. Yeah. And that's how that entire system, uh, that was the springboard that started it. And then it was, I mean, we just get together and rehearse the day before we were going to record and then you know, we'd start playing and everybody's talking about where we're going to eat Mexican food for lunch. <laughs> I mean, it was really, it was really like that, which is, I think is always the, the best, you know, kind of formula when you're, I mean, we tried to come up with arrangements on the stuff that made it a little bit different or have its own identity. But for the most part, those are kind of like jam session records. Yeah. Well, I mean, some of the most influential albums in our industry were that way. The Bluegrass album uh, was pretty much the same idea, a project that just needed to fill out a, uh, a you know, a contract, uh, you know, deal that Tony just puts together and says, hey, let's get together. and We'll just make this album and we'll get it going and, and becomes, you know, you know this. It's uh, it's everybody's yeah Bible for how to learn, uh, you know, Bluegrass. It was the same thing for that series. It was, uh, you know, it became we got to have this, uh, you know, if you're going to play bluegrass and you're a mandolin or a banjo or a guitar player, this is the stuff you need to learn. And, Study. you know, now you're part of that. So, cool. well, I mean, I would say that it's, I, it's really weird that you would segue from talking about those records into the bluegrass album band, because that seems like two different conversations <laughs> to me, but man, as far as the bluegrass album band, you're, you're exactly right, man. And we, owe it to all those guys that they played with such integrity and serve the song because it is, it's a perfect uh, point of reference for your musicianship. You know, we just, we have a lot of young players out there now that I don't think have discovered those records and it shows in, in their approach. Well, I, you know, I know you're having a hard time matching that, but I think you're, that that series that you guys did, where I will tell you for a fact, for for a guy like me who was coming up, you know that 
slightly behind you guys. That was the way we've, I mean, obviously the bluegrass album band, that's our, that's our root stuff. That's, you know, the music that we all go, when I think bluegrass, this is the stuff I want to be able to do. But when it came to bluegrass instrumentals and how the music was being formed in that nine mid nineties time period for guys like me, I know for Jeremy, Jason, uh, you know, we were that next bunch crop coming up right behind you. That's what we did. I will, I can tell you that for a fact. So, uh, yeah. You may not acknowledge it, but it was definitely a major influence on all of us. So, yeah. oh, congrats well, man. for that. I pre- and that's what I was saying, you know, beginning of this part of the conversation. It re- it blows me away. Um, like Justin Haynes, that that was fiddle player yeah. in this band forever. He would talk. He would, and he was he was one of the first musicians I ever worked with that really made me feel like an old guy. And, <laughs> and he would. Um, he would re- talk about those records and say, man, that's a part of my childhood is, yeah. is the the way he would put it. So it is crazy to think that you were a part of something that, that anybody could have even come close to um, having that kind of a relationship with the music, because I know what albums mean to me. You know, if yeah. you're, if you like the Tony Rice record cold on the shoulder and I've uh, my favorite, by the way, it's man, it's a hard record to clean after. I mean, you get that JD Crow fix as part, you know, it's got everything is in there. Everything, everything. And um, like for me at three o'clock in the morning, you know, drinking coffee and trying to get home. If, if I turn that record on, I literally don't feel like I'm alone in the car. It's like, that's your buddy that's been with you since, you know, 1985, whenever that 84, when it came out. That's the relationship. And so many people, I think, don't are never going to really know that the way we stream music and download it. You're switch true. genres and switch bands. True. I can still yeah. see myself, by the way, that album for me is, you know, I, we we're talking about that capo that I have. I have it serialized, uh, Tony Rice model capo, and it's serialized for that uh, that album. And to me, it was the most. But I remember sitting in my bed. Uh, with the actual album cover and just reading it over and over. I read that album cover, I guarantee you, over and over. And at that time, probably I had it all memorized. But every time I'd listen to it, I'd bring out that uh, that album jacket and read it again while I right. was doing it. And, and we had these relationships with those albums that were different uh, than, you know, like you said, than a lot of people well, have to. And make. Wayne's been a part of that for us, too. Yeah. More than just the Bluegrass 90s. Uh, the third time, yeah, Young stuff. Mandolin Monsters. That was Young another Mandolin one. Monsters. <laughs> That's more Jeremy's jam. Remember that, that was, one? Yeah. No, but third time out really was that for us also. Absolutely. I, mean, I can't. Um, the amount of hours we sat listening to those third time out records while we traveled in the van, going back to you know Grandpa's Mandolin. Uh, that was your first record. Is that correct? That was, that was the first on? one that I played on. Was Grandpa's yeah. Mandolin on? That was the last record that the band recorded with Rebel. And then it was a letter to home after that, I believe. Yeah, actually, there was a New Haven recording project. There was a gospel record um, called Across the Miles that we did that ended up being out of print and all that. And then when we made that, the gospel record that we did on Rounder was basically all those. I think it was 10 of the same songs. And then we recorded two different ones or whatever. But that was... um, Letter to Home was the first record that we did on Rounder. It was. And again, it's it's really hard for me to believe that those recordings would be thought of by anyone as foundational to their yeah. play. Yeah. You yeah. want to talk about the Chapmans? Me. It was it was like early on for Harmonies, Osmond Brothers for and Jim and Jesse stuff. And then third time out, uh, Letter to Home especially was like our and that's you know, that's why we got hooked up and following you guys at every festival. Like yeah. little kids just finally Ray just got everything. tired of seeing us in the front yeah. row and took pity on us and said, Hey, you guys need some help. <laughs> hey, kids. Right. And, no. and he helped us produce. And then, you know, I know one of the coolest things. Uh, so Ray Deaton, who was a bass player at the time, uh, ended up producing two albums for us. Yeah. 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 And including our first major release. And, uh, the best part about that was, your whole entire crew was always part of that. Like he'd play it for you. You guys gave ideas back to us and we're always part of that growth of who we were as musicians. And again, I, I want to take this opportunity to thank you all for all that time that you guys spent uh, on, on us. And it's, it's amazing. You were bringing it up that the idea of the musician who makes you feel old, 
Uh, and and you know you know we're telling you this. This is who we grew up with. Your music. This is what we did. Uh, I remember Zach Arnold uh, did the same thing for us when he came in here, and and all of a sudden he's just like. Uh, hey, I want to play this song and this song. These are all, you know, all of our old Chapman's tunes that he's like, man, I grew up on all this. How weird is that experience, by the way? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the first time somebody starts doing that to you. Yeah, it is, man. It's um, when things that people say, Noam Pacowney, when I was traveling with him, we always roomed together when I was um, in John Cowan's band. And he would, and I remember him saying that like if a a third time out record would come out and his parents would drive him around Chicago and find the record in a, you know, in a store or whatever, because this this would have been before Amazon and before downloads and stuff like that. But to think that here's like a nine year old kid at the time, you know, that wanted to hear that music and he was into the Lonesome River Band and stuff like that. Again, um, really hard to believe that that stuff because it still seems like it's all too modern to me for anyone to look back on that way yeah as far as the sound and it's hard to believe that 30 years have passed and that another thing you know john was mentioning how supportive you guys were as a band but also just the confidence booster that was for us individually to get asked up onto third timeouts bus and you guys would all <laughs> be friendly with us and, and to the people that we looked up to for so long and listened to in our in our travels nonstop on, on a loop that you guys would invite us on the bus and talk to us and hang and, and, and visit with us was Pick so us and- it was such a confidence booster and uh, I uh, thank you uh, directly for oh, doing yeah. that. And it's just it's so cool to, to get to, to know some of the people that are your heroes and to have them be as cool and nice as you guys were to us is uh, very thankful for that. Oh, man, I appreciate it. It's like, yeah. What's really bad is when you get to know one of your heroes and they're an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> it's happened to you. Yeah. That's happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's happened to all of us. Yeah. It's happened. And it, it's amazing how it changes yeah, your entire relationship. Yeah, Russell. Oh, my God. <laughs> that guy. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Make sure to tell him I said so. Um, it, it is amazing how it changes your entire perception of their music. Yeah. Like, I have actually had people that I would listen to on a regular basis that I just thought were the greatest. And then you go in there and that and that one, alt, uh, you know, interaction. interaction just changed everything. And you have a hard time ever hearing their yeah, voice you try ever not, again. You try not to let it affect it, but it just does. <laughs> That's right. And, I, and, I, and I'm never, like, you can catch anybody in a bad moment. And you oh, know yeah. what it's like when you're playing, you know, if it's 108 degrees outside and, you, you know, you're not having the best day of your life and you, and you talk to someone or whatever, and then you revisit that moment later that day and think, man, maybe I wasn't the nicest guy, you know, two hours ago when we got off stage or whatever. So I would, I would give anybody the benefit of the doubt on stuff like that. But if you really are around someone long enough to kind of, you know, get this overall bad vibe, unfortunately yeah. it can, you know, negatively affect how much you like what they do. I, and I think it's something that we should all pay attention. I, I don't know if I, I've told you guys this or my wife, I guarantee you has told we had run a, when I met my wife for the very first time, I honestly don't even remember this at all. She's still hearing. Uh-huh. And she knows this, too. Uh, she came and saw us at a show. At, at, we were playing Dollywood, and those were the days of, uh, I don't know if you guys ever had to do these, but it was five shows a day, hot sun, and, you know, like I said, 100 degrees, and we're just rocking through shows and get them over with and then move on to the next one. And according to her, I was absolutely rude and was not a cool person at all in any way, <laughs> shape, or form. Uh, and then somehow we ended up meeting up again later, and, and I was all right, I guess, at that point. But it's something we should probably pay attention to more than or now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, man, in that situation that you're talking about will bring out the best in you if it's there. I'm, but yeah, I've definitely played, you know, in s- those situations, especially as a teenager, man, I used to yeah. play at this place in North Carolina called Tweetsy Railroad where you did like eight sets a day. And it was, um, I'm going to say they were like 25 minutes shows or whatever and you were playing under this pavilion and it's a bunch of retirement age people with their grandkids and they're all eating barbecue while you're on stage and the set list was made out for you you had to play orange blossom special rocky top <laughs> all the face fox fox on the run it's i've done that gig 
you know, yeah. and it makes it makes you appreciate when you don't have to. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think that I think everybody is supposed to do. I mean, and I'm not I don't want to sound like the old guy. Oh, you got to pay your dues. But there's there's a lot to be said for appreciating things in life if they don't come too early. Mm-hmm. You know, like success that's found too early by a lot of people, they're not able to handle it or it turns them into a monster or something. Yeah. But when or, you or maybe hard it, to follow up with more successes after that and it kind of plateaus er- too early. Yeah, and everything in life is like that. You know, like if you if you have to work for it and wait for a while and premeditate it, I think a lot of times we appreciate it more when it does finally arrive. That's why I'm still waiting to be successful. <laughs> Jeremy, I'm also waiting for you to be successful. <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> I wish uh, you would be successful. Something I was thinking when we've already talked about how just listening to your albums were influential in the Chapman's. I think one of the biggest things that is underrated is how well you guys manage a stage. Like we would sit in the front row and watch you guys. And there was a confidence. I think in our, in our touring before that, there was a lot of competition among bands and they're, they're all jump on stage with as much energy as you can. We got to win the crowd and we've got to keep them in their lawn chairs. We've got to beat everybody else. And then third time out would walk out on stage and, you know, Steve would just kind of like, because there was this confidence that you guys all had and a way of interacting with the the fans that kind of put the fans at ease. And it made the show a lot more like you brought everybody onto the stage with you and just said, let's play some music together and have fun. And we really tried to like pick up on that and like try not to be that super intense band. That's going to wow everybody with our speed and, and intensity and just get up there and, and interact with the crowd as if they're friends I thought that was so cool the way you all seem to have your own personas on stage that way. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think it was just because of the five of us collectively that it kind of came off that way, but everybody in that band would be, I feel like would agree that we, we never intended to try to be a musician's musician. We knew who we were and the, and the people that would be interested in listening to us. were not going to be Mark O'Connor you know, or anybody like that. So there's no sense trying to carry yourself that way, you know, because none of us ever, I mean, I never felt like I was going to be a Sam Bush or a Doyle Lawson or a Ricky Skaggs. Those three names are probably the first that I'm going to, you know, come forward with if I'm talking about who influenced me. And when you look at them, they were the same way. They just yeah. did the music that they liked and played it. And you, you can't be afraid to be yourself. That's what everybody falls in love with about bluegrass is that it's not um, commercially conceived and it's not overly competitive in its nature. I mean, the, the songs are about lost love and home and happiness and death. And I mean, the real subjects, you know, it's, sure. it's easy to get too far removed from that, man. When you listen, go back and listen to the Stanley brothers or flat and scrubs or Bill Monroe, listen to those songs. That's what people want to relate to. Yeah. You know? I, I had this conversation actually today with Liz, who is our, uh, one of our uh, technicians here at the shop and she was out playing a gig and she said, you know how much easier it is when I just go out there and I just play music and I'm not all concerned about all the details and all the little things that most of the people don't really care about all that much. I just get to do the songs. I get to tell the stories. I get to just do it my way. And I think that was what, what you were kind of hinting at or directly going after, which is that idea of, Hey, if I just play who I am, uh, you know, some people may not like it, but at least, you know, at least I give them a chance to know who I am. And like you said, the music is already designed to be that it's, it's designed to be, you know, home. It's, well, it's, it's a funny conundrum that, that it goes in a lot of industries, but music, especially or entertainment, there's this confidence that comes with success yeah. and comfort that comes with success. And it's not a cocky confidence, but it's a confidence of I am who I am. And we learned it later in life, but you guys definitely had it. And, you know, we watch people like uh, Marty Rabin, who, I mean, uh, the confidence that comes from a person like that or a third time out at the time, especially was just, it's a confidence in knowing I am who I am. Like you said, I am who I am. Uh, people are going to either love it or hate it. And that's not going to make a difference <laughs> to me. I'm just going to be me. And that's great. And that it's, it's a funny thing. Cause these bands that are coming up behind that with all this phonetic energy and, and I have to, succeed and I have to get 
encores and I have to do great and I have to be successful or I won't get another job that comes across way too, I don't, I guess needy. <laughs> and, and once you get to the level of success that they're trying to reach, then you slow down and realize I don't have to be that. So it's yeah. a kind of a weird conundrum, conundrum I've seen with bands where it's like screaming yeah. and running we and dancing it. and we went through it. Yeah. Really hard, <laughs> <laughs> but we learned the hard way. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Music is a lot of fun. It can, it should be fun. You have uh, definitely made sure it's fun, and now you've got uh, Wayne's World of Mandolin Instruction. Besides uh, doing just the performance stuff, you are doing a lot of teaching nowadays. Uh, how has that changed you as a musician? Oh, man. It's, uh, it's probably, uh, well, not probably. As, as far as being an improvisational musician, it's definitely made me overthink everything you know because it's a it's a real blessing to teach don't get me wrong but like when you're up you know for like when you've got brand new students that are unaware of these you know massive concepts you know if it's the chord scale or modal approach or whatever it is and you talk about those things over and over and over you you really know it and you're really connected to the fretboard the way you should be but then it's it's really easy to get caught up in thinking about all of that instead of just playing in the moment so that would be the the one um negative that comes from it but it's mm. and and, and it, what it's really done that's so cool is it's reminded me of why I fell in love with the mandolin in the first place because you get to see that brand new energy in people that are just discovering bluegrass. And and that doesn't have to be a 15 year old, like, you know, myself starting out on, which I played guitar from my childhood, but really got into mandolin as a sophomore in high school. And when I see um, other, you know, people that age that are getting into it, I'm, you know, I can just kind of imagine what that, pathway is going to be it's you know rather they do it as a career or if it's just something that they have a passion for and it's like music provides a therapy for me you know my relationship with my mandolin is a lot of different things and again you know at this age like looking back you know the fact that I really fell in love with Boone Creek and with Ricky Skaggs and just that sound of his mandolin and that attitude that that band played with. I loved it so much. And, and I'm not a guy that's really ever had a plan. Everything in my life is just kind of unfolded because I love that one thing. And I wanted to play everybody that I've met, the bands that I've been in, where I've lived through the, you know, different seasons of my life. All of that has totally been, been because of mandolin. So it gives you, it's, Teaching is bigger than what you have in front of you in terms of teaching because you know that music is potentially going to be the guiding point or the point of reference for everything that might happen to someone because that's that's what music is to me. It's it's you know totally a way of life. It's way bigger than earning a living or you know trying to come up with different ways to monetize what you do it's it really is everything so you want to handle that with a lot of care when you're teaching someone it's bigger than what it feels like it is yeah that's that's a great point to keep in mind we've talked about this before we're looking into our personal lives i can't think of many substantial relationships that i have right now that aren't somehow music related that i didn't meet that person through music or i don't interact with them through music it, it becomes the like you said the guiding force in your life once you really get yep. uh, kind of involved in music and following you and, and you can correct me some on this, but it seemed like uh, when you were playing before, and I think a lot of bluegrass musicians do this where a lot of it's ear play, ear playing by ear, ear training, uh, listening to somebody play and then kind of emulating that I saw. And this may, may or may not be true, but I, it felt like I saw a big transition to where your understanding of the mandolin and some of the theory really took off when you took a break from third time out and went to work with Cowan is that true or was that just kind of me uh, injecting that into um, what really happened? But it seemed like all of a sudden your approach to mandolin changed a little bit when you were back with third time out. It definitely did. Um, during the season of playing with John, being around improvisational players uh, like Jeff Autry or Noam Pacowney, 
Shad Cobb and Luke Bulla again, totally in over my head to mm-hmm. be playing with guys like that. And it created an ambition to to learn more about how improvisational playing works and learn some swing standards and to a better understanding of scales, modes, being able to arpeggiate chord progressions and things like that, that you don't really have to think like that as a, as a bluegrass player. But at the same time, um, I was still a young enough player at that point that I hadn't matured um, as far as trying to serve the song. I feel like any of the the recordings that I played on with Third Time Out after I had been with John, I'm playing more melody and and serve the song better. So I feel like I grew in every you know possible direction. But as far as a shift in the way I think about the fretboard, that all came from when um, when Kristen and I, after we got married, you know, it's like all your stuff gets combined. You know, all of a sudden your record collection's twice as sure. big. But, you know, in in our case, it was basically that we had two copies of all the same albums because <laughs> we liked the same stuff. But Kristen had um, these Bela Fleck instructional cassette tapes, you know, and, and just to have something to do in the car driving from Nashville to Atlanta, I would listen to these instructional tapes. And he's like playing like an interval exercise or whatever over a scale and talking about how this leads into a modal application of the scale. And I'm driving along and thinking, man, I don't I don't understand any of this, you know. And so I started trying to kind of transpose what I was hearing him talk about, because he is, if not my favorite, one of my favorite improvisational musicians of all time. It's, I mean, it's amazing the way he could play in 1983. Nobody else has really, you know, even accomplished that as far as banjo playing to me. I mean, he's just so far ahead of his time. But anyway, I started to, you know, try to move some of those thoughts onto the fretboard of the mandolin. And then I had a, a theory book that I bought that was actually a piano book, but that was a good thing too, because I'd have to transpose all of that, you know, to the fretboard of the mandolin. And it definitely has an impact on your playing, you know, when you do that. And it's, it's a, you know, there's two ways to look at it. Once you ever drink the Kool-Aid on all that, you can (laughs) never go back to being that. You can never go back to being that guy that just plays and does everything by ear because it wants that creeps in and, and maybe you could, but like teaching as much as I do, that's I'm always going to have an awareness of those things and that they're, they're right there under your nose all the time. Even if you're not thinking about them. Powerful stuff right there. It, it, it's something that I, I think is a really cool thing that you've been able to, you, you just kind of articulated that it is always there in the back of your mind, but you were able to kind of mold those two uh, different approaches to music where a lot of, I'm still in that camp where I don't understand enough about the theory. I've learned a lot more about it from teaching, but definitely not to the level of what you were just describing with Bela's instruction. Um, and we've had, I've had some great conversations with Bill Keith in the past where he would just talk to me and I, my eyes would just glaze over and I'd just kind of <laughs> nod. It takes about eight seconds to be lost in a conversation with him, <laughs> you know, about theory, you know. <laughs> But you were able to kind of take, and it's not like I saw a drastic uh, change in your playing, like all of a sudden you just threw away all that stuff that had had led you to that point. But it was almost a different approach to music that it it seemed apparent. And I think a lot of that was that now you had that understanding of, I've been using these techniques by ear, that all this theory is embedded in that. But now I'm able to actually consciously anticipate this coming and then adjust to it. And being able to bring your history of being ear, it almost seems like ear training would be a harder thing to teach somebody that is totally theory based than the the opposite way where um, somebody that has been playing by ear so long, once they learn to incorporate theory into it, then they can still use that uh, ear training to use those tools a little bit better. Yeah. And it, it totally depends on the individual. You know, some people are, you know, can almost immediately learn something like that and then realize, don't take any of this uh, too seriously. It's all about the process, like the process of going through all that develops your ear. There's a famous Charlie Parker quote that I should learn, but based in a (laughs) nutshell, he says, we all we all learn arpeggios, scales, 
modes and all these different devices so that we can forget about them and just play. You know, I always try to think of it like that, that you're um, when you if you send someone a text message, you don't have to remind yourself what the letter T sounds like. It's fundamental. So all of those things like that, that you learn, you shouldn't be thinking about them. It should just be that you're able to invest, you know, in in music emotionally, because that's the stuff that we love. I like it. That's what we want to hear. I mean, you think about you want to know all that, but at the same time, you want to play like Larry Sparks. Yeah, <laughs> I think I heard a quote you know? that you made once where somebody in one of your uh, your workshops, you, you were talking a lot of theory and, and then they raised their hand and said, well, Bill Monroe never had to learn any of this. And I think you said something like, well, Bill Monroe was a genius and you're not Bill Monroe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've had you get that a lot, you know, and I I mean, like when I because that's my bag as a teacher and I'm not a fit for every person, you know, and I've had people say, man, I don't you know, I don't want to learn, you know, anything about theory, anything, any of this stuff that you're that you're talking about. I'm bluegrass. I'm the real thing. Ah. And I and I and I always say, okay, you live in a cabin, you work in a coal mine, you, <laughs> you can see your genre mom's, of music. Yeah, you can see your mom's grave out behind ah. your cabin. That's if you were true to all those things, man, I'm I grew up, you know, just a few blocks from a huge shopping mall. Yeah. And I could, you know, I could ride my bike to a Burger King when I was a kid. It was None called the this... High Lonesome uh, Center Strip. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you know, right at the end of the road that I grew up on, there's a laundromat and a Dairy Queen and a video arcade, you know, in 1984. So you none of those ruined all of your authenticity. It is yeah. over, Wayne. You are but done. That's what. Hey, it's, you know, bluegrass is just music that I heard and I can relate to it as far as the values and stuff sure. like that. But um, as far as growing up like that and that's and I always tell people that, and, you know, and then there's the other side of it where I've I've had guys say, man, I don't want to learn any fiddle tunes or uh, learn how to chop or, you know, play out of core positions. I just want to get right into bluegrass. <laughs> what? what what i mean what do you do with that attitude you know what <laughs> speaking of great quotes uh i want to say wayne has had so many great quotes that have uh filled my entire life but the one that will always always uh show up i'm getting single, nervous now Aaron. every single, every single jam session i remember we were in a jam session just picking together in this circle and I'm just sitting there just tuning. I'm like nervous. I'm freaking out and I'm tuning and tuning. And he just leans over and he goes, man, tuning's optional. That's my favorite <laughs> quote of all time. Tuning is optional. Uh, from then on, uh, that's how I've lived my life. <laughs> it took, it took it to heart. Unfortunately. <laughs> okay, man. I think that I was nervous there cause I thought it was going to be a different quote. Uh, <laughs> We that. won't talk I got about some of those quotes and, too. And some of those yeah. things that happen on the bus. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've got some of those too. We're not going to share those on a podcast. I, 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 I promise. So, Jeremy, quick, give me a situation where somebody needs an instrument fast. Um, there is a band that's performing. You want to get backstage. You don't know how to get backstage, but you're a huge fan. So you grab a guitar. You walk backstage and say, "Hey, I got to get this to the lead singer. He needs it now." All right, John, give me a situation quickly where they can get that guitar. Well, here's the deal. You guys can go to theacousticshop.com and get on there. You can search for guitars. You can check by brand. You can check by style. All those different things. Order it. It will be shipped that day, if not the very next day. Now, give me a situation where they need a banjo. Uh, There's no need for banjo. Everybody knows nobody needs a banjo. But if you did need a banjo, you go to theacousticshop.com. Like John said, check us out. And uh, thanks for supporting the podcast. I can't think of a reason. Nobody has a reason Sorry, for a banjo. So you've uh, you've gone through a, a number of different um, mandolins in your history. Um, what kind of what was your first mandolin when you started out? And then some of the progression. I remember your, when Tucker mandolins came out. You were one of the first guys playing with the Tucker mandolins, and then all the way through what you're playing now. Well, the first mandolin would have I been want every single one of them model number serial number. Okay. <laughs> Man, the first thing would have been a little Harmony A model mandolin that was probably sold like in a Sears and Roebuck catalog or something. And there was a guy that my dad my dad had a construction company eventually, but he was working on a construction crew when I was a kid. 
and somebody owed him 20 bucks and gave him this of uh, the mandolin because he didn't have any money. So that's kind of what got me started on mandolin. What a great and then, origin story right there. I'm talking yeah. about how much that impacted your life. And it yeah. was that transaction. For sure. And then from there, um, I bought a, um, and what was it? Brazos mandolin. There was a Japanese made instrument or something as a teenager. And it was my first F5. I made enough money uh, cutting grass over the summer to, to move into that. Then from there up to a Bob Shoe mandolin, I grew up about a block from a mandolin builder, which is really weird to, you know, to have lived in Concord there in North Carolina. But he also had at the mall and the Burger King. And and that's right. Yeah. The same. We had it all. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, that was I had that, you know, uh, custom made mandolin. And then my first Gibson was a 1980 F5L mandolin that had originally belonged to Dewey Farmer that a lot of people are familiar with his playing from back in the 70s with A.L. Wood and the Smoky Ridge Boys so it felt and he was a big influence on me as a teenager so it felt really cool to own this mandolin that had originally belonged to him I bought it from a guy named Clarence Green that was a very well-known regional player there in the Piedmont area of North Carolina. So at that, that was the mandolin that um, would, I played on the grandpa's mandolin record. It's on the cover of that album Mm -hmm. and everything. And the one before that, the shoe mandolin is what I was playing on the live wire record. And then from there you would pick up right where you were with the Tucker mandolins that I've, I met Melvin, I think in 1994 and, um, started playing one of his F5s and then he built for me um, a mandola that I've played for all these years. And then from there, uh, Jim Triggs, I did an endorsement with him. He, he's a, you know, monster bit. And before that, there was actually Rigel mm-hmm. mandolins that I did a, a, an endorsement with them at one point. Then Jim Triggs and, um, Before the Triggs thing happened, I was actually able to buy, um, I have a 1926 Gibson mandolin that I acquired in September of 1998 was when I got that mandolin, which is a really big deal, you know, to be blessed to own something like that. And I'm not kidding, guys. I lived like a gypsy to be (laughs) to come up with the bread to buy that. Like all those years that we're talking about that we would see each other all the time. For during that span for a couple of years, man, I didn't have a home or an apartment or anything like that. Everybody I knew was tired of seeing me lay on the couch, <laughs> you know, but that's what it took, you know. And I, I, man, I wanted one of those mandolins because, and I knew that it would have an unbelievable impact uh, on my, on my playing. And also just what that does as far as, other musicians that you really look up to have a reason to maybe take you a little more seriously or whatever, if you own something like that. So anyway, that happened in 98 and then I, the Triggs endorsement and then uh, 2000 or 2001 was when the ball started rolling for the signature model mandolins that Gibson did. There was an Alan Bobby, they made 50 Alan Bobby mandolins and 50 Adam Steffies and 50 uh, Benson signature models. And you can still get a, a Sam Bush model and probably maybe even a Doyle Lawson model, yeah. I think. Yep. So anyway, that, you know, all those, it's wild that I can remember all that. I, and I have most of this wrote, like the Benson model mandolins, I've owned a bunch. Every time I see one of those, if, for sale if i haven't owned it i just automatically buy it and i have a you know a log book of like how they sound you know because it and it probably sounds selfish but i mean like whichever one of those is the best of them I, at some point i hope that it belongs to me you know sure. with it you know being a signature model and then um i had swore that i was would never do another endorsement or whatever i just felt like i, I was done with that and i was back to playing my uh, old Gibson mandolin after, you know, after playing the signature model Gibson stuff for a long time. And then Jonathan McClanahan uh, out of the blue, just called me. I was driving to Atlanta uh, to meet the bus with Russell 
And he said, you know, cut to the chase pretty much. He said, I'd like to build an F5 for you. And I I said, man, I appreciate the call, but I'm not, uh, you know, in the market for anything different to play. And his response, he said, let me build the mandolin and give it to you. And he said, if you don't play it on stage, then that's my fault that it wasn't good enough. And I thought, man, you can't beat that, you know, (laughs) that attitude. So he, he built it and, I've been uh, playing it. I think it's working on eight years that I've been playing Jonathan's stuff. And he is a world class, you know, builder, best dude you'll ever meet. And there's, I mean, there's been, I buy a lot of mandolins and, you know, just to own them because you you don't really get a feel for what an instrument like that is unless you own it for a while. You know, so I've had. Uh, Dom Acrosti stuff and those Ellis mandolins. Some of those are really fun to play. The Collings instruments, I've owned those. I had a Paganoni mandolin there for a while. I've got a Gilchrist, uh, you know, from the mid-90s. That it's X-braced, and it's a hoss of a mandolin, too. But that's, that's one again, um, in, in your life, you know, you never, I never saw myself as somebody that would buy that many mandolins and sell them or be comfortable with setup whatsoever. And then I just kind of grew into it. Well, it's obvious that uh, Wayne is a very passionate mandolin person. He's all the way into mandolins. He's got a good collection um, and talks to stuff. I, I think that's pretty awesome. I really do. Yeah. I think the, the one big take out of this is thinking all those things that you've talked about, owning these different mandolins, all the different people you've met along the way, how much, you know, that one catalyst of, picking up the guitar as a young kid and eventually getting into the mandolin, how the trajectory of your life is just completely centered around that and all the people you meet and interact with, even to this day when you take on a new student. And I definitely encourage people, anybody really wanting to dive into mandolin, check out Wayne's world. He's got some great videos online, but also reach out to Wayne. I've been threatening to do it for years. I have to do it because I need to understand (laughs) more of, more of the theory behind it. And I, and every time I've sat down with you, you've been, excellent at explaining these concepts to me it just takes me another two weeks to sit down and and try to (laughs) digest it it and figure out how to actually put that into playing but um i I am going to take some of your time and and, uh, schedule some lessons with you man that'd be awesome it'd be fun i absolutely agree and go ahead and change my total uh approach to mandolin i'll i'll be one of those people that i'll take the red pill and (laughs) and <laughs> just see how, how it changes my outlook on the way I play the mandolin. Right. And and you guys have a camp. We did. We were going to, and, and Wayne's come back. supposed to come back. If we do this again, we had Kristen at it. We talked to her on a previous episode. We had Kristen in here and we talked about the camp and we're going to get Wayne to get in and do it too. When that happens, it's going to be awesome because again, if anybody has the experience to see both those two musicians as musicians, but also as teachers, it is a and very individuals. thing. Well, they're, they're okay people too. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> no, it's always, it's a ton of fun. We got together at uh, this IBMA this last time we got to pick together. I absolutely, uh, you know, am in awe every time I see you as a player, as a, uh, you know, as, like I said, the, the, the skills you both have as teachers knocks me out. Um, I'm, uh, you know, I find myself, I do a lot of teaching. I do not uh, do it to the level uh, of either one of you. And it's pretty impressive to see that. Um, yeah. I'm just blown away with it. Yep. And the impact that Wayne's had on us um, musically can't be understated. And uh, as a friend, it's it's been incredible. And uh, we want to thank you for taking the time to do this. Yeah. Oh, this was a blast, man. Any, any time. Like I was saying earlier, I really enjoy these podcasts with, uh, you know, even with guys that, you know, people that you've known all your life or, you, or you've r- rubbed shoulders with throughout your career to get to hear these podcasts. It, it's really cool. And it's important, man, what you guys are. I mean, this should all be archived. I mean, think about the, you know, how cool it would be if something like this, you know, existed for the bluegrass musicians from the 60s and 70s oh, yeah. That, yeah. that we all love that it's kind of a mystery who they were and anybody that knew those people are, I mean, they're all going away. So I think it's important that this kind of thing be captured. I recently, I put some video up on my channel of, of third time out, you know, playing at the Opry or something and that kind of thing. One of the musicians that Kristen had worked for that passed away, she found some videotape 
of them playing the Opry together with Larry Stevenson and, and made copies of it and sent it to his family, you would have thought they hit the lottery, man. I mean, sure. stuff like this, you know, it's important to archive what we do. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've spent our entire lives uh, dedicated to this music and what we want to do. And, and, you know, uh, for that to all be in vain is pretty is pretty sad notion. Uh, sure. And, yes. Uh, <laughs> and and on a personal, more personal level, because obviously there's the recordings and there's the music captured, but a lot of the fans that's the only side of it they get. They get to maybe see the band on stage. They get to hear the the recording over and over on uh, streaming service or whatever. But getting to hear the stories of where you guys came for, not just the uh, the standard interview question of, well, tell us the first time you owned an instrument or. You know, that sort of thing where it's, it's more of a uh, personal history. I think that is a, a very cool thing. And I, I, I kick myself that we don't have some of those stories that we got to be a fly on the wall when the Osborne brothers were backstage talking about their their big rise to fame and, and the, the giant folk music movement and, and having some of those stories that weren't really captured in this type of format. I agree. It's a, it's a very cool thing to, to get to hear and appreciate you being a part of that. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Man, I appreciate you guys. We will definitely do it again. Uh, next time, we'll have even better stories and things to talk about, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds <laughs> good. All right. Thanks, Wayne. We'll see you next All time, right. buddy. Yep, yeah, pal. Y'all take care. Yeah. So there you are. Talking there, to Wayne. I was right here in this Wayne. spot. And right there, you, you didn't move. I'm surprised. I, I was kind of feel. I don't want to say I was disappointed, but <laughs> I kind of expected when I said, "Hey, I've learned a lot of your licks," that he'd say, "Oh, yeah, I've learned a few of yours as well." No, he was sitting you there like, "Yeah, licks. I heard you." Um, but that's okay. I'm sure he'll get around to it. Yeah, I bet he will. <laughs> I'm going to send him a few selections from my collection <laughs> that he can. Uh, it's like incorporated like into his collection. Page. Jeremy's collection is three and a half pages. <laughs> it's just yeah, like, if it isn't a Wayne Benson lick, it's an Alan Bybee lick. <laughs> I have some Doyle Lawson I have some Sandbush. I even have a few Thiele licks. So I, I kind of mash them all together. It definitely sounds mashed. I can tell you. <laughs> well, you take those licks and then you throw them down the stairs. <laughs> and that's basically what Jeremy sounds like. Amanda Takes a lick and it keeps on kicking. Am I right? Yeah. That's my anyway, style of playing. Uh, Enough beating up Jeremy. <laughs> no. And Wayne was a lot of fun. I enjoyed talking about some of his history. I love that he really articulated what this podcast is about and how much our whole store, the idea behind this is we understand how impactful music can be, and especially acoustic music. That's where we all came from in our roots. Yep. But just getting that first instrument as a kid or an adult, we have some, I, I love telling some students about dad's, our dad, Bill, the teaches banjo at the shop, he had a student that had wanted to play banjo his entire life, and his son finally brought him in at 97 years old mm. and started banjo lessons. And this guy took lessons for two or three years before, unfortunately, passed on. But he, it was one of those things that has always been in the back of his mind that he wanted to be a musician, and he finally took that step. You're so never too old. It's not just kids that, that it can change their life, but even at that farther stage of life, that music can be so impactful, and Wayne yeah. really articulated that well. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was inspiring to see that uh, we had, you know, when we had that fella coming into the shop all the time and, and how much it changed his life, how much it changes young people's lives. Um, he's seen it. We've seen it. I think uh, everybody should take note of this and recognize that music is beyond just something that you put on in your car. It truly is a livelihood. It is part of who you are. Like There's, Wayne said, it's therapy. It, it's It's his place to... Get right. There's not a whole lot of times that I'm put on, especially some of the older albums, where I don't remember a thing that happened, a pivotal point in my life, whether it's, you know, I don't know. It's There's just a lot of things that always bring up that. So, again, music, cool, huh? Yep. And Wayne's <laughs> cool for passing it on and teaching all these great new random players and playing music live, very active in uh, making music. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it's awesome. Making so it happen. That was exciting. I can't wait to see what our next guest is going to be because... All these have been fun and enlightening. Yeah. Ooh. Enlightening. That was your best NPR voice, Sergio. I, I thought my first episode was my best. Enlightening. <laughs> enlightening. Again, uh, if you guys are enjoying the podcast, please rate it at, uh, at any of the uh, 
forums that you guys are doing. It's your leisure. Forums. Nobody's in forums, John. They're on platforms where people <laughs> download and subscribe. If you haven't already, please yeah. subscribe. I, See how this works is it's, it a, five it's a star. feed, an RSS feed that I, is hosted on a server at one place. I don't know what you're People about. either download or stream understand. the podcast. It's not on a forum. I, it's not on the TV. I, it's not on a radio channel. Can I get this on my car radio? It depends on what channel you stream yes. to your radio. Is it possible to see? Do you get this from the internet? I guess technically it is on a radio channel if you're Bluetooth. Is this on AM or FM channel? No, it's on the Bluetooth channel. <laughs> oh, great. The Bluetooth channel. Do you guys have to type in www dot to see this? Or yes, uh, that's only two W's. You need a third. Oh. Uh, anyway, kids guys, we will see you in the next episode where John learns to use a computer. That'll be a fun one. Neato. <laughs> Hey, John's kid, can you download this uh, episode from the forum for John so he can listen to it? Get my hear, programs. Hear what a hey. smart fella he sounds like? Hey, Billy. Hey, Billy, I want to listen to my programs. Matlock. Matlock's on pretty soon. Hey, by the way, uh, does anybody figure out how to get the clock to stop bleeping on their, hey, John. Uh, on their VCR? And this has been the rest of the story, John. <laughs> The Acoustic Shop knows people. Handmade by Trent Pruitt, Hinkley Hinkleston, and Jason Chapman for The Acoustic Shop. Theme song written and performed by Ofer Corin. And please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.